0: This is our, I guess we've been one month in quarantine now, so I think this is our third or fourth lesson online. We're getting used to it somewhat. This is our 13th week in the Old Testament book of Job. We'll be going over chapters 9 and 10 today. This is Job's reply to Bildad, Bildad's first speech. As you know, Job was a rich, good, godly man back in the time of Abraham. He came under attack from the Satan, who we call Satan now, but. He was just called the Satan at the time, the adversary, the enemy. Uh, he later became, that became one of his proper names. Uh, Job survived the first attacks of the Satan with amazing faith. But then Satan returned with a horrible disease, probably leprosy. It was very painful and it meant he was, he was cast out of their society. So Job moved to the local dump, an outcast and penniless, but he still held on to his faith. Now, he had three friends who lived at a distance, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And it appears that they heard about his early disasters, where he lost all of his wealth and his kids, and they decided to come help him. They made the long journey together to meet with Job. But when they arrived to help him, they discovered he was now a leper, and all their plans changed. Uh, They couldn't really help him much. He was doomed in their sight. And in fact, uh, they seemed to decide that he was going to die, and they didn't even talk to him. So Job started to crack then. His faith was almost gone. The first thing he did, though, since they weren't talking to him, in chapter 3, Job cursed the creation. He cursed light, uh, darkness, calendars, time, existence, and pretty much everything except for God. So Satan technically hadn't won yet because Job did not curse God. But then the friends decided they'd better say something, and the leader of the friends was named Eliphaz the Temanite, Eliphaz told Job about a vision that he had with a ghost. And the gist of the spirit's argument was that no one and nothing can be pure before God. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And I suspect that this was actually Satan or a demon uh, reinforcing Eliphaz's view that Job is gonna claim to be innocent and he's not. No one is innocent. So uh, Eliphaz and his friends though, they all believe in a doctrine we call the doctrine of retribution. And uh, it's actually one reason it's a popular doctrine among people is that it sounds right. And in fact, it is right, ultimately. If you think about it, the basis of your morality and the basis of our society's ethics are all based on retribution. What we want to happen is, if someone does evil, we want to punish him. Right? That's good. That's what justice is supposed to be, unless you're a Democrat. But anyway, the... uh, The retribution, though, if if someone does good and someone is righteous and helpful to you, you want them to be rewarded. Isn't that right? Yes. So retribution is ultimately right. The problem is, is that God does not act upon the doctrine of retribution immediately. And in fact, you're fortunate that he doesn't. If God acted immediately on the doctrine of retribution, you would have been killed long before you were saved. Jesus wouldn't have been able to save you because if God acted on your sin the first time you sinned you'd be dead at birth so anyway that's why the doctrine of retribution although it is true it's not true all the time every day that's uh, fortunate for us well anyway Job responded to Eliphaz in chapter six and seven he did make a little apology a slight apology you might call it for his rash words he says I'm really tired and angry and or, or upset And grieving, so forgive my rash words. And he calls them his friends and his brothers. But he also puts his finger correctly on why they're so upset and why they're mistreating him. It's because they're afraid. They're terrified. In verse 21 of chapter 6, he said, For now you are nothing because you see terror and are afraid. So basically he said, I know why you guys are attacking me. It's because you're afraid this could happen to you. And they don't want to believe that. So Job asked them gently, uh, be nice to me, at least show me where I've sinned. If you're gonna attack me, show me what I've done wrong. That's where we came last week with Bildad. So we studied the first speech of Bildad the Shuhite in Job chapter eight. Now Bildad did not take any of Job's requests seriously that the friends be nice or be impartial at looking at his situation or being kind. Bildad was none of the above. Bildad comes out with his guns blazing He says that Job's words are too many and all wrong. He says Job's kids died because they were wicked. That's friendly. And this is particularly noteworthy because it it might imply that Bildad doesn't believe in sacrifice, or at least that sacrifice cannot help your kids. And actually, I've heard modern theologians say the same thing. But you forget that in the time before Moses, fathers did sacrifice on behalf of their children and it was considered to be by god efficacious because the children couldn't sacrifice for themselves so the father was required to do that it's interesting though that bildad doesn't seem to believe that because assuming bildad knew that job used to sacrifice for his children then even if his children had done something evil they were forgiven for it so that's just an interesting point maybe bildad doesn't believe in sacrifice in fact It seems more like Bildad just believes in straight retribution and that there maybe even is no forgiveness. You've just got to be righteous. If you want God to be good to you, you have to be obedient. Maybe he was a legalist. Uh, Maybe he believes in salvation by works. It's hard to tell. It does sound like that, though. So next, Bildad, he seconds Eliphaz's opinion that God is righteous therefore god judges wickedness therefore since job is under punishment he must be very wicked indeed you see this is that false syllogism it's got partial truth and partial error god is righteous yes god punishes sin well yes eventually but not every moment that's where they're wrong and third therefore if anything is going wrong in your life you're being punished that's also wrong So they've got half their syllogism wrong, and yet they're clinging to it. Bildad is a man of black and white. Everything's black and white. There's no gray. The wisdom of the old is pure and right. And he looks back over time and uses his inductive reasoning, and he says there are no examples of God punishing righteous people. So why would he start with you, Job? That's a rhetorical question, obviously, but not for Job. Bildad reminded Job that in the pre-flood world, men lived almost a thousand years. And they had all these centuries to grow very wise indeed. And who are, who are these young whippersnappers compared to them? How can you question the wisdom of our ancestors? That's kind of like the Catholic Church is that uh, most of their theology is based on their own traditions rather than the Bible. Bildad is the voice of tradition. Now you can see this kind of thinking though uh, even in the life of Paul. If you remember, there's an, uh, in Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 28, they're caught in a uh, sea storm at sea while they're on a ship going to Rome. Paul warned them not to go, they went anyway. And a big storm came up and the ship is breaking apart on the rocks. And he tells everybody just swim to shore, God will save you all. And he did. So they all got to shore and they built a bonfire to, to warm up. Well, the natives came down on the beach and were watching all the strangers at the fire. And while Paul was putting a stick in the fire, a viper struck him and grabbed onto his arm and held on. It didn't let go. You know, rattlers, they bite you and back off. But some of these vipers grab on and don't let go. They pump you full of venom. Well, he just shook it off and threw it away. Well, the natives all said, look at this wicked man. The gods tried to kill him in the ocean and failed. So he comes up on shore and the gods got him now. The snake's going to kill him. That's the doctrine of retribution again. He must be wicked because he got bit by a snake. So it's not like this was a, uh, a doctrine that died in the time of Bildad, but the uh, natives were wrong. He shook the snake off and he was unharmed. Then they thought he was a god. So talk about primitive people. The god, first they thought he was a criminal, then they thought he was a god. I did show you also some possible implications that Bildad and others are taking from their oral traditions. As I told you, there was no Bible. There were no Bible books written. It's possible that the book of Enoch had been started, or at least by oral traditions, and pieces of Enoch were true, but nothing was written down yet in the Bible, and so Bildad and the others are using oral traditions, and a lot of these oral traditions may be mentioned by Moses in the book of Genesis, but this is hundreds of years later they wrote that. It's odd, I pointed out, that the genealogy of Seth and Noah... They're the godly man. It told them how long, how many years every one of these men lived. But at the same time in the chapter before, in the genealogy of Cain and the wicked men, it never tells you how long they lived. And so that's just odd. And so perhaps these men with their oral traditions, they knew that godly men lived long lives and they didn't know whether wicked men lived long lives because it didn't say in their tradition. So maybe they just assumed that wicked men died young compared to righteous people. But the most obvious thing that Bildad said, and that you can take away from the age before, that's the pre-flood time, is that God wiped out all the wicked and saved all the righteous in Noah's Ark. See, this is proof, right? This is proof that God kills the wicked and saves the righteous. So to their minds, the biggest event that's happened in history is the flood, and They are the descendants of the people who came out of the flood. And what they know is that God punishes wicked people and God saves righteous people. They don't know anything more than that. And they're sticking to it. That's their story. So obviously, Job must be wicked because he's facing judgments. Well, see, they're wrong. These aren't judgments. They're tests. But they don't know the difference yet. And they don't know that there's perhaps the Satan doing these tests. They seem to know about an evil dragon But they don't seem to know just how uh, involved he is in heavenly and earthly activities. We know because of the story that Job is not being judged. He's being tested. But this is new in God's working with men. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and even Job don't know that. They don't know about testing. So their reasoned oral traditions are incomplete. You might not say they're wrong. You just say they're incomplete. So then Bildad ended with a long illustration about a papyrus plant. And the papyrus plant can grow very tall and very strong. But in one single night, it can wither and die. If the water, it needs water always. If there is ever no water in a papyrus plant, it just goes, dead. So that's what he said about Job. He says, Job, you're like that papyrus plant. You stood strong and tall for a long time, and now you're dead because you've lost your faith. If all you got to do is repent, Job, and God will take you back in and you'll shoot up again, you'll have your health and wealth back. There's the health and wealth gospel. So the application that I gave is that Bildad, even if he was technically correct, which he was not, he was a fool because he was overconfident and proud. He was practically taunting Job for the death of his children, and that's just cruelty itself. You can be evil in your advice, even if the advice is correct. You know, you can correct someone and smile the whole time, showing that you're enjoying putting this person down. You might be right, but you're wrong because your attitude is wrong. If you do it arrogantly and harmfully, you know, if a lady came into the church and looked at you and said, that is the ugliest outfit I have ever seen. How could you wear that in public? Even if it's true, it's not nice. See, so there's a problem. You've got to be nice and true, perhaps. So uh, all of us need to be humble enough to recognize that our ideas might be wrong. Or at least, even if you're too arrogant to admit your ideas might be wrong, you could at least admit that your ideas could use some improvements, right? I mean, a uh, twitch here and there? At least you've got to be that humble. The, the holiest people are not so stubborn that they won't refuse to hear other possibilities or discuss ideas. Some folks that I derogatorily refer to as true believers are just arrogant zealots who believe they're so knowledgeable that no one can dare to speak to them about any topic because they already know it all. That's not the way to be, and that's the way Bildad appears to be. So if you reach the point where you refuse to read or listen to or even ponder any opinion contrary to your own, you're a weak, not a strong Christian. That's not proof of strength, being so confident that you're stupidly arrogant that's not strength and you're also in danger of falling badly confidence requires a little bit of flexibility not defensive fear or anger so those kind of people make the worst comforters there's no such thing as comfort to a guy like bildad comfort's irrelevant who needs comfort this is the religion of the mind we don't need heart bildad doesn't care if you die in fact that might be the best thing that could happen in his opinion So these are the kind of people you don't really want in a church. Uh, We might have them, who knows, but you don't want them there because they're terrible comforters. So that's our review. Now we'll start in Job chapter 9 and hopefully make it through verse 10 when Job responds to Bildad. So we'll read verses 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? The first thing I notice in Job's reply is that he practically ignores Bildad. Aside from this first line where Job says, truly I know it is so, That's about the only time he really seems to refer to Bildad in this whole speech. He just let Bildad blabber away and is practically ignoring him. All he says is, yeah, you're right. So that's about it. Job doesn't speak to Bildad. This whole speech is given to God. So what does Job know that Bildad says is so? And he tells us right here at the first verses. Job agrees. God is just. God destroys the wicked and saves the righteous. So Job also believes in the doctrine of retribution, as stated by Eliphaz and Bildad. And this is part of Job's problem. Because Job knows that God is just, but Job at the same time knows that he has been righteous. And even if he has sinned, he has sacrificed for his sins. So Job knows, yes, God is right, but he also knows, yes, I'm right. And these two things don't fit in his uh, philosophy here. He recognizes this conundrum that both things cannot be true. God cannot be righteous, and I cannot be righteous, and therefore God can't be punishing me. That's why his world is messed up, because he can't understand. So his worldview is now in question. His whole life he's believed in the just and God, and he has served God, and yet now Job is being crushed by God. How can this be? And you see where the problem is. He is right on both counts. God is just. I have been righteous. He's right. The problem is his conclusion that difficulties are punishments. He assumes wrongly that anything that goes wrong in your life is a punishment. And it's not. That's probably one of the main lessons we learn from the book of Job and that he needs to learn is that God does things that aren't punishments, that seem like punishments. We sort of know the answer. We don't fully know the answer. Theodicy that's a T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. That's the uh, origin of sin, the question of where did sin come from. And the innocence of God from sin, even though he decreed it, this is a mysterious, troublesome, unsolvable doctrine. Just, I don't know if you'll find it funny, but I found it funny. I spent months working on the question of theodicy in seminary back when I was really smart. <laughs> and I knew Dr. Gerstner very well. I was his secretary at the time. So i called him on the phone one day and i told him i've solved the question of theodicy i know the answer to the mystery of sin and he says okay come on over we'll talk about it so i drove over to his house and uh, anyway we sat down and i told him laid out this explanation and he nodded and says mm, yes john this is one of the earliest heresies called this and i went and looked it up and sure it was it was one of the earliest heresies so nope didn't solve the origin of sin question Oh, well, I had a brief moment of thinking I had solved the unsolvable. But this is one of the true mysteries that nobody has been able to solve, including me or Dr. Gersner. But we do have much more information than Job had because the narrator told us about the scene in heaven with God and Satan. God is not the direct torturer of Job. Who is? The Satan. Yet God allows... The tortures of Satan therefore God is still responsible so even though Satan is the primary actor God is the responsible actor okay that's a problem right how does God permit evil well but we also know that God does not intend these to be harms on Job ultimately in fact they're meant as good they're meant to help him grow up the suffering is supposed to improve Job teach Job and purify Job Once Job was inexperienced, naive, and untouched by problems, now he will be able to empathize with sufferers. Just as Jesus learned as a man to sense our hardships and pains, as it tells us in Hebrews, he is the high priest who understands us. Jesus learned just like Job learned by personal trials, but he didn't end up cursing everything in the same path. So now we'll go on to verses 5 through 12 of Job's reply. He removes mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens, and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out, yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? So here Job gives a list of things that God can or does do. God, here are the verbs he uses. God removes, overturns, shakes, commands, seals, spreads out, treads, makes, does great things, goes, moves, and takes. So in those seven or eight verses, he has like 12 or 15 verbs. But in these verbs, or in these verses, Job speaks of the omnipotence of God, who is capable of doing anything. He, he wishes and it is done in the universe. Then Job speaks of the invisibility of God, or his nature as a spirit, not a body. Now this is a contradiction of modern anthropology, the liberal view of anthropology on the spread of religion, is that people were all animists and there's gods and demons in everything and then we got a little smarter and we had fewer gods and only recently did we adopt the idea of invisible spirit gods and then one god. That's the most recent innovation according to anthropologists on religion. But in fact, what you see here, one scientific truth you see here is that Job and these other guys believe in an invisible god who spreads out the heavens. And uh, some Christians, I've read a number of Christian scientists point out that this may be a reference obliquely to God and the Big Bang. Not not that the Big Bang is true, but that the universe is expanding. It's what we call the expanding universe. If you look at it through a telescope, all of the galaxies are moving away from each other, not closer. So the universe is expanding. So this could be a reference to that. But in some of these verses, it's obvious, I think, that Job was talking about the great flood. He talks about mountains being overturned and the earth shakes and the sun not coming up. I don't think that means that the sun didn't come up literally. I think it means that the whole earth was surrounded by clouds and falling water and you couldn't see the sun for a couple of months. But at any rate, the earth was dark for months under torrents of rain and the collapse of the water canopy, perhaps. In verse 10, Job practically quotes Eliphaz, basically. He agrees with all of Eliphaz's claims that God does great things. He quotes him wonders without number which is what Eliphaz said in 5.9, chapter 5, verse 9. So it almost sounds like God's being praised here, right? Job's praising God here? Nope, afraid not. He's actually beginning to twist his view of God as the inscrutable, unknowable one. He is the powerful, unfeeling force. If you remember, I told you at the beginning of the book, before the trials, Job believed in a merciful and just God. Now, Job only believes in a distant just God. Job mistakenly, in his mind, used to believe he had a personal relationship with this God and that God loved him. He no longer believes that. God is no longer his friend. God is now his attacker. So he is still powerful, but he is also unknowable. Uh, He no longer refers to God as Jehovah. He only refers to God as God. God or omnipotent one or strong one. He only refers to God in uh, abstract nouns now. He's no longer his personal friend God. This reminds me, though, of a famous classic book called Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Uh, It's not the most interesting book ever written. It is considered to be one of the best books ever written in American literature. But to be honest, I've read it a couple of times, it is downright boring most of the time. Uh, He has page after page after page of whale biology. Now, whales are cool. I love whales, but understanding every little bit about whales wasn't helpful, in my opinion, to the book Moby Dick. But many or even most scholars believe that Moby Dick was a symbol of God and that Ahab was trying to conquer this inscrutable God. In fact, R.C. Sproul, who just died a few months ago, I believe, he wrote his college thesis on Moby Dick, as a Christian document. And this is what he wrote more recently in one of his uh, blogs on the Ligonier website. I'll just quote you this statement. Only those who have experienced the sweetness of reconciling grace can look at the overwhelming power, sovereignty, and immutability of the transcendent God and there find peace rather than hatred or a drive for vengeance. What Sproul is saying is that unbelievers hate God. Uh, he also wrote a short essay that was very clever, especially the title. One of the most famous sermons ever written was by Jonathan Edwards. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this was one of the foundations of the, uh, the Reformation here in the United States, the Great Awakening. Well, Sproul reversed the title a little bit and changed it to God in the Hand of Angry Sinners and showed how much sinners hate God. That's what the book Moby Dick is all about. Ahab hates the white whale who is sort of all powerful, unknowable, white, pops up, does things he wants, no one can stop him. And so Ahab makes it his, his evil mission to get rid of this white whale and fails, ultimately. This is a lot also like uh, Psalm 2, where the nations rage and wish they could break free of God's control and his sovereignty. This is where Job is going. He's starting to go like Ahab a little bit, he's entering rebellion territory. Job now knows God, but he no longer loves God, and he fears and dislikes this God. He's starting to turn against God. All of these things he says, God did this, God did that, he's not saying that because he loves that God. He's saying it because he fears and even starts to hate this God. He's reached this place because he doesn't understand God's will for him. So let's continue to see Job's downward momentum in verses 13 through 20. Okay, Here's what Job feels about God. God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, he fills me with bitterness if it is a matter of strength indeed he is strong and if of justice who will appoint my day in the court though I were righteous my own mouth would condemn me though I were blameless it would prove me perverse so Job says that God is crushing him with a tempest now this is interesting because in chapter 38 and 37 God will rise in a tempest and talk to Job out of the whirlwind so Job's complaining about God being in a storm. God says, oh, you like storms? Here, I'll come to you in a storm. Job says that God multiplies his wounds without cause and fills him with bitterness. This is just like Ahab, blaming Moby Dick for his wounds and his own hatred. Job says, even if God answered me, I wouldn't believe him, that he's listening to me. That's a pretty dim view of God. In short... God is more of a capricious, inscrutable force than a person. He's just a powerful being who pays no attention to uh, his people or the people on earth. It's useless to try to talk to this God. He won't listen. There cannot be justice because he won't listen to me or answer me. Even though I'm blameless, he condemns me as wicked. I think that Job is coming dangerously close to cursing God. He's... He's basically starting to hint that God is not righteous. God's done wrong with me. So let's continue, verses 21 to 24. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given to the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. And if it's not him, who else could it be? Okay, now this is devil talk. This is the sort of thing that Satan would say. It's one thing to say, as we believe, that God sends the sun and the rain, God sends blessing and curses on both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus himself says that. That's not what Job says. Job says God laughs at the plight of the innocent. That's a wow statement there. Job has gone back to his rash words and doubled down on them. Instead of cursing the creation, now Job is making judgments on God. He says God is cruel. God enjoys seeing the innocent get crushed. And on what basis does Job make this judgment? Because Job is blameless and he's being crushed. And in that last verse, he says, It must be God. Who else could it be? Who else indeed? It's the Satan. Who crushes Job and laughs at his plight? It's not God. God allowed the crushing, but God's not laughing about it. So Job's going off the deep end here. Let's look at verses 25 to 31. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you plunge me into the pit and my own clothes abhor me. So Job says poetically that his life is swiftly flowing away. And whenever he tries to find a bright side to his life, he remembers all his sufferings and he knows that God will just keep hurting him. No matter how much repentance he might try, God will still destroy him. So why not just kill me now? And the last verses of the chapter here are verses 32 to 35. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should both go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us, who may lay his hand on us both. Let let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and fear him, but it is not so with me. Here Job seems to be saying that he's a mere mortal and he is incapable of speaking with God in court. So he says, I need a mediator. Job seems to be seeking a lawyer who's capable of handling a divine intervention. But a lawyer is not really what Job needs. This sounds a lot like a reference To the future role of Jesus Christ between God and man. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 5, for there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. In the Old Testament, no one knew who the mediator was. They sacrificed animals because God told them to, but that sacrifice was only a symbol of the future innocent who would die to cover the sin. So priests were a mediator in a sense, but they also sinned, and therefore they were imperfect mediators, as Hebrew says. No one believed that the death of an animal saved them, or that the priests saved them. The trouble is, mediation, you need to understand, it's more than ransom. It's also more than a lawyer. As the Puritan John Gill wrote, Christ acts the part of a mediator by proposing to his father, To make satisfaction for the offense committed, and so to appease injured justice. In other words, Jesus is the mediator, and he's not just making satisfaction. In other words, he doesn't just pay enough to make you neutral again, he also pays more than enough to appease any future injustice you do, any sins of the future. Christ is a mediator of reconciliation in a way of satisfaction. Reconciliation in this way is Christ's great work as the mediator. This is what was proposed in the covenant and what he agreed to do. That is why he is called the mediator of the covenant. Uh, this is from the Body of Divinity, Volume 2, Chapter 11. Now, certainly, this topic of the mediator is also relevant because Satan is called the accuser. Satan, the name, the Satan, means the accuser or the enemy, the adversary. It's not really his name. His real name is Lucifer, or at least it was. But we call him Satan because he's always acting as the enemy or the accuser. Now, in chapters 1 and 2 of Job, the Satan accused Job of falseness. It was a lie. He wasn't false. He wanted, Satan wanted to prove it, though. And Satan continues to do this sort of thing in the New Testament. In Revelation chapter 12, the Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. But now Jesus is the mediator and intercedes for us. The little Zoom uh, button came up. Thank you for choosing Zoom. I don't know if I just push okay or... Yeah, keep going. Okay. So Satan goes to God and accuses us before God. But then Jesus steps up before the throne and says, I paid for that sin. So Job is very correct that he needs a mediator but he doesn't really understand that the role the mediator is going to take Job thinks that what he needs is a sturdy lawyer who can argue before God and not be afraid Jesus though doesn't have to argue all Jesus has to do to deflect Satan's accusations is say I paid for all that irrelevant your honor these sins don't even exist anymore that's why the Satan's accusations are no longer bothersome to us However, that does not mean that God doesn't test us or test his people. In this case, Job is being tested because God wants to prove Job's loyalty against Satan's accusations. So now we go into chapter 10, which is a little shorter. We'll look at verses 1 through 7. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as a man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? That you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver me from your hand. So once again, Job accuses God of oppression, Job says that God knows he is not wicked, yet oppresses him anyway. That is accusing God of injustice. Notice also that Job asks if God sees like a mortal man with eyes of flesh. Job doesn't know it, but yes, he will in about 2,000 years when Jesus comes. Jesus will be a human, and he will know how we feel, and he will see how we see. So now verses 8 through 12. Your hands have made me and fashioned me, an intricate unity, yet you wish to destroy me. Remember, I pray, that you made me like clay. Will you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. Now, here Job remembers that God made him intricately from clay and before God granted him life and favor and preserved him. But now, God, why are you destroying me? And this is the sort of talk that goes on through the end of the chapter. Verses 13 to 22. These things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me and you will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift up my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion. And again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witnesses against me, and increase your indignation to me. Changes and war are ever with me. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had never been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease. Leave me alone so I may take a little comfort before I go to the place where I will never return. To the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land as dark as darkness itself. As the shadow of death without any order where even the light is like darkness. Here Job says, God hunts me like a fierce lion. Why did you even create me just to kill me? Leave me alone to have a little peace before I die. And then Job incorrectly assumes that his future is hell or a sort of hell, but he misunderstands the afterlife as just a place of darkness and not real harm. There hasn't been much of a doctrine of hell taught yet. So in summary, in these chapters, Job is truly bitter. He's in the grip of misery. Again, he's speaking rash words, but this time they are more honest You see, in chapter 3, Job was beating around the bush, cursing creation. Against Eliphaz, Job held his uprightness and criticized his friends for being unhelpful. But the attacks of Bildad have brought out the truth, finally, that Job now views God as his enemy and his oppressor. And even though he's wrong, he is doing better, in the sense that you cannot learn your own error until you start sharing it and seeing it that's the first stage of finding your problem is self-examination he has examined himself and he's wrong on many counts but he's starting to find the truth that is what that he's angry at god that's the truth he's been denying it before but now he's bringing it out job was not sinning before but he is sinning now job has misconceptions of god and how god's world should work like many a proud seminary student, like me decades ago, I thought I had it all figured out. And then God brought out some tests, and I learned that I didn't really know much of anything about God or his will or his ways. That's why I said Dad was so wrong. The man who thinks he understands God deeply is lying to himself. There's a wonderful book out by uh, J.I. Packer called Knowing God. It's a great book. There are even better books about God, like books from Stephen Charnock, The Existence and Attributes of God. If you memorize those books, you are still not a God expert. As Paul said, we just see in a glass darkly. We are too small and primitive to understand God. Eliphaz and Bildad and Job think they have God all figured out, but they don't. They have small bits of understanding. It's like an elementary school student learning mathematics. First they learn addition, and then they learn subtraction and then multiplication, and then division, and then algebra, then geometry, and trigonometry. If you were able to live 960 years like Methuselah, you still wouldn't understand God very well. You just got a little bit of a glimpse of God. Now, some theologians take this truth and twist it. They say, since we cannot know God fully, it's useless to even try. Well, that's wrong. Or they say that the Bible is just men trying to understand God and mucking it all up. That's why you can't trust the Bible. It's just a bunch of opinions God uh, that men had about God. No, that's wrong too. The Satan is big on these doctrines. He will twist any truth. The unknowable nature of God means that we should never be overconfident on our understanding. But it does not mean that we shouldn't try to understand God. In fact, we are going to spend eternity learning more about God. We're not going to suddenly arrive in heaven and be omniscient and know everything. That's impossible, except for God. The purpose of eternity is not to live forever singing, it's to live forever learning. In John 17, 3, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The knowledge of God is your purpose on earth. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and serve him forever. You can't glorify him if you don't know him. Right? You can't enjoy him if you don't know him. That is why your purpose is to learn and study God. Now, some conservatives hem and haw about that. They say that that last phrase is irrelevant, that our enjoyment of God is not a purpose of God. After all, how does God gain glory from our entertainment? Well, it's not our entertainment. You see, the problem is nowadays, we view, we're surrounded with trivial and even wicked forms of entertainment. And so thus we're skeptical of the idea of enjoying God because the whole idea of enjoyment is so surrounded by sin with us. But the real point of enjoying God is not that you mortal man or woman feel good about God. No, the point is that for this life and the afterlife, you will glorify God by more and more learning about him and that knowledge proves that he is even more lovable and glorious than you knew before. So God does gain glory from you enjoying him because God is a beautiful lovely God and if you don't love him and enjoy him you don't know him you understand Job doesn't know God anymore he thought he knew him and now he says no I don't know him anymore and so now he's angry or fearful of God that is what turned me around when I was a teenager I had a deep fear of God and yet I never loved God until I read Charity and Its Fruits by Jonathan Edwards And when Jonathan Edwards said, you know you're a Christian if you love God, I was amazed. I said, what? Love God? Why would I love God? He could throw me into hell any moment. It wasn't until I understood Jesus and the sacrifice that I recognized that God was lovable. If you don't love God, you're not a Christian. That's the thing that proves that you love God. That's what gives you the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have a deep knowledge of God to be loved by God. One of the verses that I memorized recently is Psalm ninety-one, fourteen. It is a messianic psalm, but it certainly has implications for us too. So let me read you verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 91. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Because he loves God, God delivers him. God sets him on high because he knows my name. I will answer, I will deliver him. What is the point of these verses? The point is that you have a relationship with God. That's how I gained assurance of salvation when I realized that I loved God and Jesus. Fearing God and Jesus aren't enough. That's the first step you got to fear him, you got to know who he is. But then you got to go past that and be able to love him and see that he is lovable. Job is in dangerous territory because he used to love God, but now he only fears and he begins to distrust God. And that is one of the goals of the Satan. If he cannot kill you, he will try to turn you against God. I had this happen to me in 1987 when I was maliciously forced to leave a Christian college. I started to turn on the faith. My feelings were hurt, and I started looking into pantheism. I was angry at Christianity, but I discovered that pantheism has no truth. What I had to learn was that Satan works in churches, and he has minions there, just as he does everywhere. Job has no way of understanding what was happening, and so God was patient with him. In fact, it's a good sign that we're here in a sense, because at least Job is talking to God again. He's doing it out of ignorance. He's doing it out of malice, even. But Job is speaking the truth from his heart. And now that he spills it out, he might be able to recognize more carefully what he's saying and where he's going wrong. It's sort of like God allowing you to fall into sin sometimes just to prove that you're not as strong as you think. It reminds me of these uh, cute videos that I love. If you see, I post on uh, my animal site about baby elephants. I've always got baby elephants there. Well, these little baby elephants will charge at you and they put their ears out to look huge and they flap their trunk around like they're going to hit you with it. They run up to you about 20 feet away, and then they realize that they're far from mom. And they look up, and they look back, and there's mom back there. And he turns around and runs home with his tail flapping. That's, that's the way we are. We vent. We charge at God, and we say, how can you do this to me, and charge at God? And then we realize how stupid we've been and run back to God instead. Job's friends bash him for his venting, and yes, Job is wrong but it doesn't do any good to rebuke someone who's in total despair. What are you going to do, make them more despairful? They they can't get any more despair. Now, it it would have been better if their friends just stayed quiet and gave him some food and let him rest. That's how the angel helped Elijah when he was fearful and suicidal. So that's what we learn about Job today. Next week, we're going to move on to Zophar and his first speech. I don't know if anyone's on here, so I don't know whether there are any questions, but we do have uh, 10 or 12 minutes if there are any questions. All I can see up here is me. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of people on. Okay, anybody have any questions about this uh, lesson about Job talking to Bildad? Did you you say you were maliciously uh, thrown out of a Christian college? Yeah, they weren't able to throw me out. They tried to get me to quit, and so they just kicked out all of my friends and threatened to kick out my girlfriend until I left. Wow. They were... uh, They were anti-Calvinistic. They hated any smell of Calvinism. So it just didn't work out. That's how I ended up going to Geneva, and it was a much better school. Any other questions? After prayer, we can leave that on for fellowship if people want to talk. Okay. I guess uh, what I hear then is that if you guys want to talk to each other, you can just leave on and we'll go to a time of fellowship now. So I'm going to turn off the camera. That's recording on YouTube, and then you guys can chat. I'm going to get a drink of water. Enjoy the drink of water. (laughs) Thanks. Hi, (laughs) Matt. Oh, too much feedback in our house. I can see you.